A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When Diplomacy Fails presents A Master's Dissertation by Zach Twomley Chapter 2 Honour in the Interventionist Camp By summer 1914, Great Britain, France and Russia were associated in a loose political arrangement termed the Triple Entente. Having cultivated closer relations with France since 1904 when the Entente Cordiale was signed, British foreign policy had then moved towards more amicable relations with Russia in 1907 with the Anglo-Russian Convention. However, such arrangements did not constitute an alliance. The Russian agreement in particular was designed purely to solve colonial disputes and nullify what were perceived as Russian threats to Britain's empire. Yet, because of this association, Britain's foreign policy soon became intertwined with the Franco-German rivalry, and in 1906 and 1911 various crises forced British policymakers to stand with France against German pressure. Podcast footnote. These crises were the various Moroccan crises, more specifically Tangier and Algeciras. In both cases, German underestimation of the situation caused British opinion to rally against them, and in both cases the Germans lost a great deal of credit in British eyes. End podcast footnote. In addition to its association with France, the Anglo-German relationship was also soured by a naval race between Britain and Germany that bore witness to a ferocious building and spending program as both sides attempted to surpass the other in the construction of dreadnought battleships. By the spring of 1913, however, this naval race had ended in Britain's favour, and as the British lead in naval capabilities became comfortable enough that British statesmen no longer had to fear the German challenge, relations became warmer. This improvement in relations was aided by a number of factors, including the Anglo-German cooperation in mediating the Balkan Wars, which had disrupted and then eradicated the status quo of Europe. Podcast footnote. The Balkan Wars erupted in spring 1912 and ended a year later with a completely transformed patchwork of Balkan states, as well as a dramatically reduced Ottoman Empire. End podcast footnote. 
Some British policymakers were also wary of increasingly difficult Russian policies in Persia, where both Britain and Russia had originally agreed individual spheres of influence. Amidst fears that Russia might be tempted to further frustrate British agreements, some statesmen posited that a closer arrangement with Germany would be favourable, with some even suggesting that, quote, Before long we may see some attempt made towards a readjustment of the present combination of Allied States. Podcast footnote. These were the words of British Ambassador to the Ottoman Empire in mid-June 1914. End podcast footnote. Despite the ill-defined nature of the Entente with both Russia and France, and despite numerous assertions by both the British Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary, that Britain was not bound by any obligations to France that would involve her in a continental war, by the 2nd of August 1914, that same Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey, had succeeded in wresting a commitment from his cabinet to make war upon Germany for the sake of France, should Germany attack the undefended coasts of northern France. How do such developments occur? This chapter will examine the arguments utilised by those that favoured war in alliance with France by assessing their use of the Code of Honour, the reimagining of the relationship with France as a situation in which Britain was morally bound to involve itself, and the insistence that Britain's abandonment of France in her time of peril would result in the loss of Britain's reputation and prestige. In the last days of July 1914, British opinion was firmly against intervention in what was, at that point, a purely Austro-Serbian war. Despite this, a number of British statesmen and a portion of the media advocated intervention in any possible escalation of the conflict. In the case of the media, the most renowned newspaper in favour of British action on the continent was The Times, which argued on the 31st of July that, quote, it is not merely honour which binds us to our friends. Were we to show weakness or pusillanimity now, none would trust us again. We would be hated by the friends we had abandoned and despised by the rivals before whose threats we had flinched. End quote. By presenting this argument, the Times directly challenged the conscience of those that argued against British involvement in the continent. Not only was Britain bound by its honour to its friends, but should Britain shirk its responsibility and fail to help them, she would be submitting to the threats of her rivals. In such a way was the European situation transformed into one in which British honour was at stake. Yet, The Times was not the only newspaper that held such views. The Lincolnshire Echo was another such newspaper that had claimed on the 30th of July, quote, Great Britain is bound by no defensive alliance with any other European country, but her moral obligations to France, the outcome of the Entente Cordiale, would necessitate taking active measures. Britain cannot stand aside without imperiling vital interests and sacrificing honour. Honour was therefore linked to interest, since the loss of honour signified a loss of prestige and thus a vulnerability of the empire to attack. In such a way were the three critical concerns of the conservative press and statesman, honour, interest and security, argued for during the crisis, both collectively and interchangeably. Conversely, on the 31st of July, the Newcastle Daily Journal claimed that, though Britain had, quote, no direct interest at stake for the present, end quote, she nonetheless, quote, might feel bound by honour to take up arms, 
end quote. The Times continued that, quote, No one in this country will be found so base as to deny the moral obligation which we have incurred to help our friends in need. End quote. Once again, it was inferred by the Times that British involvement was the sole moral option, and that only those of a low moral fibre would stand against British intervention. Despite the aforementioned improvement in Anglo-German relations, some in Britain remained convinced of Germany's designs on Europe. Air Crow, a senior clerk of the British Foreign Office, had released a notable memorandum in 1907, in which he claimed that, should France face a direct challenge from Germany, Britain would be, quote, under an honourable obligation to support her, end quote. By 1914, Crow remained one of the most steadfast advocates of Entente solidarity and British intervention. He sent an appeal of sorts to Gray on the 31st of July, where he argued, quote, The whole policy of the Entente will have no meaning if it does not signify that in a just quarrel England will stand by her friends. The honourable expectation has been raised. We cannot repudiate it without exposing our good name to grave criticism. End quote. It is significant that Crow alluded here to Britain's good name, another term for reputation and another example of the code of honour that remained within the British discourse in 1914. Yet Air Crow was far from the only British statesman that upheld these ideals. Sir Arthur Nicholson, a former ambassador to Russia and the permanent undersecretary for foreign affairs, shared the same outlook. On the evening of the 1st of August, following an inconclusive meeting between the French ambassador, Paul Cambon, and Sir Edward Grey, a furious Nicholson confronted the foreign secretary and warned him point-blank that, quote, as a matter of honour, end quote, Grey could not demonstrate such faithlessness towards the Entente, and that, should Britain remain neutral, quote, you will render us a byword among nations, end quote. The pressure had been piled on by foreign dignitaries too. Following that meeting with Gray on the 1st of August, Paul Cambon warned a confidant the next day that if Britain failed to support France against Germany, quote, I do not know whether the word honour will not have to be struck out of the English dictionary. End quote. The combined moral pressure seemed to have an effect. By the 2nd of August cabinet meeting, Gray was willing to push for intervention. Indeed, on the evening of the 1st of August, Gray had noted to Sir Francis Bertie, the British ambassador to France, that this issue of the French coasts, quote, might alter public opinion here, end quote. It is worth noting that by this point, the possible plight of France had not sufficiently moved public opinion to create much interventionist public feeling, let alone interventionist cabinet feeling. Since very little in the way of binding contractual obligations actually existed, newspapers like The Times continued to utilise an honour-based argument on the 1st of August, claiming that Britain had, quote, an obligation of honour which it will discharge to the full, end quote. The Times reasoned that, although it was easy to argue away this obligation, this was not the issue since, quote, the plain man's instincts repudiates such arguments, end quote. In this case, these instincts of man can be defined as empathy with the vulnerable, a sincere desire to aid the weak and the courage to do what was right. 
Such qualities were implied to be lacking in any reader that did not agree with the Times' presentation of events. These emotional manipulations were, as can be imagined, highly effective in the atmosphere of masculine culture that subsumed Britain at the time. They were a further illustration not only of honour's pervasive nature, but also of the Times' ability to develop effective emotional challenges that would resonate with its readership. Some statesmen simplified this message even further, personifying the Entente relationship between Britain and France so that they were not partners or even allies, but friends. Sir Arthur Nicholson claimed on the 1st of August that he was sure, quote, the country would fully endorse our coming to the aid of a friend, end quote. Britain's ambassador to Austria-Hungary exclaimed that, quote, England cannot be expected to abandon her friends, end quote. In such black and white shades was the picture painted. France was the friend of Britain, and only the most heartless of observers would abandon their friend in need. Everything Britons had been taught from an early age about honour, masculinity, and their reputation as citizens of the empire pointed to doing the morally reputable thing and coming to that friend's aid, whether treaties existed on paper or not. The interventionist media underlined these points. On the 2nd of August, the Times would argue that Britain had to fight, quote, not only for honour but for self-preservation, end quote. The Observer claimed that, in the event of neutrality, quote, we shall have been false to those who trusted us, false to oral engagements as sacred as written bonds, end quote. While the Sunday Times claimed that, quote, we cannot in honour repudiate such a debt just because we have not committed ourselves to writing. End quote. Those in favour of intervention highlighted the value of oral or implied arrangements over written commitments out of their own necessity. The former were supported not by law but by honour, thus their value, paradoxically, was just as great, if not greater, than a legally binding alliance. In a momentous cabinet meeting on the morning of the 2nd of August, Sir Edward Grey had to persuade a mostly anti-interventionist government of the need to intervene. Grey's biographer noted that he, quote, opened the morning session by claiming that Britain had both moral obligations of honour and substantial obligations of policy in taking side with France, end quote. In retrospect, it is quite remarkable that Grey proved capable of wresting the necessary concessions out of his colleagues. How successful had his moral, honour-based argument been in changing their opinion? One must bear in mind that this same cabinet, with a few alterations, had been promised consistently that Britain was under no obligations to aid France, despite the fact that by 1912 the French fleet had relocated to the Mediterranean Sea and left its north and western coasts undefended. In December of 1911, Asquith reassured the House of, quote, no secret engagements with France, end quote, and added, quote, there are no secret engagements with any foreign government that entail upon us any obligation to render military or naval service to any power, end quote. Having allayed his colleagues' fears and assured them of Britain's free hand many times since, Grey now had to persuade them that, in fact, British aid was required. 
Retrospectively in his memoirs, Gray noted that it was, quote, better for our good name, end quote, for Britain to intervene when it did, and that, had she remained neutral, quote, no one would have hoped or feared anything from us or thought our friendship worth having. We should have been discredited, end quote. Such reflections compelled one historian to note that, quote, for Grey then, the war was at root a matter of honour. Indeed, to be discredited, to speak of the damage to one's good name, to fear loss of influence, all were byproducts of the Code of Honour. Shame was the penalty Grey feared if Britain absolved itself of any continental involvements. Grey's biographer noted that, quote, Gray did feel a sense of moral obligation, though it is too simple to suppose that his calculations in this crisis can be reduced in any easy fashion. The sense of moral commitment, his biographer concluded, was real, but it was also allied to a strong calculation of self-interest. End quote. Of course, Gray and his colleagues were motivated by additional issues other than those of a moral quality. Entire libraries have been filled in an attempt to ascertain the British cabinet's motives, but it is nonetheless significant that the lexicon of honour did factor so strongly into his considerations. Not until Grey emerged from his meeting with cabinet at lunchtime on the 2nd of August 1914 did the interventionist camp possess much tangible support for war, in the form of a cabinet promise to defend the French coasts from German attack. Podcast footnote. This cabinet promise meant that, if Germany wished to wage war against the French, she would have to refrain from attacking her coasts, or else she would incur British ire, and very possibly a declaration of war. Despite this commitment, it was not certain in the minds of many that Britain would declare war, even though such a commitment in such desperate times suggests that peace was by now impossible. End podcast footnote. Thus, for a few critical days, the interventionist media had to emphasise an honour-based argument in the hope that by appealing not only to their readership, but also to government ministers, they could persuade them not only of the moral righteousness of their cause, but also of the penalties to British honour and reputation that would follow neutrality. It is worth investigating whether the concept of honour was pervasive and powerful enough to actually manipulate the terms of the Triple Entente. A letter to The Times on the 3rd of August painted the following picture of events. Quote, when we are weighing at this supreme juncture our obligations towards France, there is one consideration to which, as honourable men, we are bound to give full weight. If one has cultivated for a good many years relations of a close and cordial intimacy with a friend, and knows that he is incurred as a consequence, the enmity of a third power, when that third party forces upon him a challenge which he cannot in honour take up, can a man of honour cross over to the other side of the street and refuse to help him? Based on the mere plea that there is no written obligation to help him? End quote. Such a letter encapsulated the interventionist message. Once again, France was the friend, and because of what Britain had endured with her over the previous decade, from standing with her in various crises to devolving spheres of naval control, the French had been led to believe that Britain would aid her in the event of war. 
Britain would thus betray her friend's expectations, a truly dishonourable act, if she elected to remain indifferent in the coming conflict that was sure to imperil French security. One of the members of cabinet that agreed passionately with this stance was Winston Churchill, who, as First Lord of the Admiralty, had done much over the previous days to heighten tensions and expectations where the British Navy was concerned. A committed interventionist, he believed that the expectation had been raised within France over the previous years, and that, quote, Whatever disclaimers we had made about not being committed to France, what it came down to in reality was the question, could we, when it came to the point, honourably stand by and see the naked French coasts ravaged within gunshot of our main fleet? End quote. In such a way was a supposedly non-binding Entente Agreement transformed into a binding alliance by the sheer moral force of honour-based arguments. Churchill's belief that honour and morality compelled action despite the assurances of a British free hand over the previous years was a contradiction not lost on his political rivals. Honour enabled the media and some statesmen to present their cases concrete, despite the absence of written obligations to either of Britain's Entente partners. The undefended French coasts debate was subsumed in an honour-based rhetoric that provided the interventionists with the opportunity to first bypass and then manipulate the contractual realities of the time. It armed British statesmen like Gray, Crow, Nicholson and Churchill with loaded scenarios that involved the reaping of shame, the defamation of reputation and the betrayal of moral principles. It also empowered the interventionist media with dramatically simple yet strikingly effective messages and headlines designed to emotionally appeal to their readership and connect them to the events of the continent. Without honour, interventionists would have been without either support or such potent arguments, and would instead have been forced to rely on other suspect devices like the balance of power. Yet, the interventionists' mission did not end upon the conclusion of the afternoon cabinet meeting on the 2nd of August. The battle for the hearts and minds of the British populace was being waged. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. ...aged simultaneously by the anti-interventionist camp. And their spread of the message of non-intervention had been greatly aided by their interpretation and dissemination of the Code of Honour. The next chapter will analyse their exploits. This dissertation mini-series has been divided into six parts for easier listening. You have reached the end of one part, but not the end of the entire mini-series, so please check your downloads for the remaining parts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.